What up, Fatherhoods Nation? If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. They've got ill creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Not only that, but Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and all that. You can make a little paper from your podcast too with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one spot. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. This is KGB. What up, is DJ EFN. Yo, and this is your man, Manny Digital. Welcome to the Fatherhoods Podcast. Beats, rhymes, and diamonds. It's like Don't I was telling up. somebody just now, like, you know, you realize after a certain point that, you know, all you have is relationships and memories. And, you know, people are the only thing that matter because sort of projects sort of come and go with those relationships sort of travel with you. And wherever your, your people go, you go. That's true. Mm. And sometimes when they blow up, they call you back and there might be a check there. Sometimes that happens. Yeah. It does happen. I need more. I need more of those memories and relationships. <laughs> those those are the best. Like relationship with Bill Gates hasn't happened yet. Uh, like, Dad, what does blow up mean? Well, son, you see, back in the day, when people got put on, you know, <laughs> it's like if you think about it, if you had to break down to somebody all of the lingo for like the last, just go 30 years. You didn't have to go farther back than that. You would have to explain so much stuff just to get your point across. And, and, and I realize when I'm talking to somebody and I have to sort of explain hip hop culture, I was like, well, you know, that's derivative from this. And he's like, what's that? Well, that's derivative from this. And I'm like, wow, you guys really had to do a lot of thinking. I said, no, nobody talked. People just said what they wanted. <laughs> And did their thing, and then somebody sort of you know, added on to it, and so on and so forth. And then you look up, and, and it, you know you got a culture. And then somebody sort of you know if they're smart enough, they decipher what all these things mean. But most of these people didn't know what the hell they were talking about. <laughs> I, was like, I was actually riding. We took a drive yesterday, and then we were riding by. And there was some dude smoking a blunt on on the sidewalk. And my wife looked over at me and she goes, who, who, what age group would be the people who say grass? <laughs> I said, I said, uh, yeah, probably like 70 plus. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> oh my goodness. I can't believe she like, would even need to know that. Like, yeah. Who are you talking to that you even need to ask that? <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> Well, like we we've been never actually we, we started recording already because we are <laughs> just talking shit. <laughs> but let's introduce Uh-oh. you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, and I, I will say, if Siri or Alexa or Google are listening. Uh, I don't know these guys. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So with us today, we have uh, a legend in the art world, Mr. Say Adams. And if you don't know his artwork, you probably actually do. 
Um, aside from bombing trains and coming up in the graffiti world, he changed his course and, um, you know, really became uh, a very sought after designer and still is. Uh, he and his partner were the in-house uh, studio team for Def Jam uh, for many years and did a lot of classic, iconic album covers. Uh, if you've ever seen the Chappelle Show logo or if you've seen the Mary J. Blige logo, among others, you know, that's Say Adams right there. And he continues to uh, do a lot of fine artwork and work with brands like Paps Blue Ribbon and Levi's. And, you know, he's just an all-around good guy and, most importantly, a father. So welcome, Say Adams. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah. Even even in the pandemic, we have a studio audience. So, um. well, that's, that's good to know. It's, it's nice to know that there are still people that will put their lives at risk to uh, <laughs> just to clap for you or the culture. Right, <laughs> right. 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 <laughs> so love for the culture. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! <laughs> hey, say, um, yes? before we before we jump into parenting stuff here's a question i was listening to um i was listening to one of claw's podcasts the other day and um and they were talking about graffiti and since you come from the the early days of the graph world what's your thought on because graffiti seems to predate hip-hop and so what's your thought in terms of how did graffiti get kind of uh glommed onto by oh, hip hop. Yeah, how do, how did how do, how do you think that happened? Oh, and, yeah, and 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 do people feel from the graph world that graph should be a standalone thing or should it be a a tent pole in hip hop? Well, well, um for all intents and purposes, if you break it down and you think about it like youth culture. And I know that that's kind of hard by today's standard because you know, we sound like old men talking about, you know, this thing and putting it in this scholarly sort of context. But that's really what it is. It, you know, hip-hop at its core was youth culture. It was young right. people doing their thing for their peers and nobody else. They, they weren't, there was, you know, everybody sort of had the idea of getting paid, but we didn't have relationships with adults that could make that happen. So... You know, you were dreaming with your friends. Um, and, you know, th that's what graffiti was. It was, it, you know, it, it was people sort of making art and designs for their friends. And when I was 17, 18, 19, I didn't even come in contact with anybody that could, you know, buy me a hot dog, let alone, you know, make enough money where I could buy a pair of sneakers. So that just puts it in the framework for your audience. I mean, think about your friends not even being able to buy you a slice of pizza, even if pizza's a dollar. Right. That's what we're talking about. Nobody's got any money. Everybody is doing this for the love. And I know that we use those terms a lot now um, in hip-hop culture, but that's the easiest way to understand it is that nobody's got anything and everybody's sort of, you know, at the starting gate and it's a level playing field. And so that's where we are, you know, in the beginning, 
you know, we'll just say in the 70s. I don't want to go too far back because, yeah. you know, if you have teenage listeners, you've already, you know, they've ran out of the room. Right. Or, you lost you them know, in the 70s. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, right. Lost them in grass. I hope they modern day hip hop is starts in the seventies and even that so someone's gonna get lost in that. Yeah, facts. Oh my goodness. Oh. So say say you've got um you know, we usually just delve into the familial dynamic. Wait, but did we answer the question? Which question? I know, probably not. But we'll we'll go back and answer it at the end and like is graffiti got, is graffiti know, considered by well, the graffiti. You know, it, it's, it's subjective. I mean to me Right. Graffiti is, um, I, I, I say youth culture, but nobody gets to define it, you know, and that's where you really need to stop. There is no need to ask a question because if the three of you, if somebody asks you if, if you need a permission, you know, if you need a permission to participate, you're like, I love it, therefore I'm doing it. That's <laughs> what it is. Like, don't right. ask me. Ask the kids that love it now and are doing it because, mm. you know, you're not going someplace and somebody's going to give you permission to do your thing. You're like, I'm coming in. I'm going to do my thing. I got better beats than him. You know, I got, you know, better graffiti styles than him. You know, I, I can dance better than him. I'm a better DJ. You know, it all is sort of ego driven. You just want to participate. You want to leave your little mark. And the only way to do that is to be as good as the person that is on the top of the heap. And so, you know, whoever that, that blue chip person is today, and, you know, obviously it must change, you know, from month to month. That's your goal. That's your benchmark. I'm coming in the game to take out X. So would it be safe to say that Battling is the common thread that kind of like was woven to create hip hop in a sense. Oh, sure. Yeah, of course. I mean, I mean you know what? L look at it like this. Like, remember, you know, the early days of the lunch table, <laughs> you know, like right. when you were in school. Um, you're, you know, for me, I and mean, I put it, you know, put it on myself so I don't embarrass anybody else. But it was always about impressing, you know, the girls at the, you know, at the lunch table and, you know, like who could beatbox the best on the table. Somebody, you know, could rhyme on top of that. Even if you had like, you know, flow that was long enough to last a minute, if you could do a verse back when I was in high school, that was good enough for the cool kids to recognize you. And that right. was all you wanted. Like before people were using the term nerd and before nerd became sexy, Nobody wanted to be a nerd. But in right. theory, if you weren't one of the cool kids, you were a nerd right. by default. There was nothing else. You were either cool or you were not. And if you weren't even on anybody's radar, that they would even look at you, you definitely were not looking at the cool, you know, lunch table. And I'm not saying in high school I was sitting at that table, but I definitely knew it was there. And right. I didn't have the courage to walk over there and say anything to anybody, even though by today's standards, I might be considered one of those cool people. But in high school, I was as shy as anybody else. So, so yeah. how, how did you come out? Forget about the family for now. Now you got me intrigued. I want, how, do you, <laughs> how, how do you come out of your shell to kind of 
set the stage for where you are today? Like, what was well, that Well, you know, I mean, you know, well, for starters, you know, the difference between me being a teenager and, and even, you know, the birth of hip-hop starting in my early 20s. I mean, even that is a huge leap. You know, from 15 to 20, a whole lot of things yeah. happen. And so, you know, like you guys put it in perspective, you know, like how different were you from 15 to 20? And where did you sit on the... Uh, you know, the cool scale versus just damn invisible, you know, and then forget, you know, trying to influence somebody else. You were like, you know what? I'm good right over here. You know what I mean? Like, right. think about that for a minute. You know, if you had to be put on blast and really try to impress somebody when you were a 15-year-old, a 17-year-old, you're like, eh, I, I, you know, I think i'm just gonna go home <laughs> you know a lot of pressure a lot of pressure and even now when i look at photographs of myself in 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 books and you know online from when i was you know 16 17 18 and i look down at my socks so i look at the jeans i was wearing or i look at the shirt that i was wearing it takes a lot for me to remember what i felt like being a, a frightened teenage wanting to participate and knowing that all I had was the good on the canvas that would deflect people from looking at me as an individual. Mm. And, 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 you know, think about it. Like what was in their head versus what was in front of people were always two different things. Like all three of you are silent. Like, nah, it's true. I'm, nah. I'm, I'm thinking back. <laughs> I, I, that's I'm reminiscing myself. I'm like, damn. <laughs> oh my goodness! I'm like, I lost the whole show. Nah, 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 nah. <laughs> oh my goodness! That's the thing that I love so much about hip hop, though, is that you don't need permission to participate. If you wanted to play high school football or basketball, you had to go through the coach. You had to go through the teammates that you didn't look cool. You couldn't get their attention. With hip-hop, all you had to do was just do your thing, little by little. And, and you know, you, 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 you perfect your beats. You, you know, you write your little rhymes or this or that. You know, I, I was um, watching this interview with Chuck D. And he was interviewing Rakim. Because um, Rakim has a, a new book out. And I'm looking at this in 2020 I worked with Public Enemy on all of the important records in their career I worked with Eric B and Rakim I went to high school with Eric B he was one of my best friends his brother Aunt Live who is no longer alive was one of my best friends oh, and so okay. I came up with the Eric B and Rakim crew did not you know, this is not something that a lot of people know unless they, they know me. I'm a Queens guy. So, you know, Eric B. and Rakim are, you know, they're Long Island. Um, I knew them well. And I did all their early graphics. And I'm listening to Rakim talk. And now we throw this term goat around. For my money, that is always, you know, reserved for Muhammad Ali and nobody else. Wow. There is only one goat, and it mm. is Muhammad Ali. And and then you got to call these other great people something else. But there's only one great 
and it's Muhammad Ali. Um, and it's not up for debate. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was about it's to challenge not, you right now. <laughs> it's not up for debate. It doesn't take anything away from anybody else, but that those four letters are Muhammad Ali and Tashin made a beautiful coffee table book and, and KG, maybe you've seen this where the book took up a whole table. I mean, the, the book might have been three feet by three feet by three feet and they built a special table to hold it. And, and this thing was, you know, to call it a brick is an insult. <laughs> I mean, it, it is a coffee table and it just said goat on the front and embossed gold letters. Wow. And this was a, a $10,000 book and it was, you know, signed and editioned by Muhammad Ali. Um, and, you know, that wasn't a term that was created to apply to, you know, a chef or a rapper or a basketball player. It was for Muhammad Ali, period. And people take these things out of context, but the reality is, they don't even understand what it means. Mm. He created that. It wasn't, you know, it, it doesn't mean that when somebody gets to the top of their craft, you call them the GOAT. No, you call them, you know, the best in their division. Muhammad Ali is the GOAT. Period. Because he coined it. Yeah, because he coined it. Yeah. I mean, think about it like this. It's like it's an inventor. What kind? Yeah. What kind of arrogance do you have to have to call yourself the greatest of all time? Mm. There is no more time in history than all time. <laughs> You're the and, fucking superhero, man. Greatest? Yeah, I mean, like, but just think about how crazy, like, you have to be to think that you could be that person and then realize it. And then, you know, the gold, you know, platinum standard is, you know, is you because you, like, manifested that dream that was once in your head. And I have to tell you that for my money, there's only one other person that was, you know, you know, and I hate using this term, crazy enough to have a dream like that and made it a reality. And I'm going to ask all three of you who, who you think that person is. I bet you all three of you will be wrong. Thanks. Um, Thanks for I the confidence. To, I want each one of you to answer that question. Who else do you think called himself the greatest of all time and then made it a reality? He calls it. Oh, they it has to be both of those things? They call themselves this. Yeah, they call themselves that. And then they made it a reality. To me, it'd be LL if, if you're the only okay. other person that I know that said it. LL. Next. Uh, I'm going to have to go with Melly Mel. Melly Mel. Okay, next. Shit. <laughs> Did Obama say it? I'm thinking. I'm oh, thinking wait a second. I'm Trump. still thinking sports. <laughs> oh, <shit. laughs> That's fucked up, Kay. That's fucked up. I, I mean, I'm going to say. use a different animal. I'm going right. to say Mike Jordan, but I never heard him call himself that, so I'm okay. off. The answer is Kanye West. Ooh. And now okay. think about it. Doesn't yeah. it make sense? Who else is crazy enough to call himself the greatest of all time and then achieve it? And I only know this because I heard Kanye talking about it once and he said, you know, people give me a hard time because I had the audacity to want something better for myself. And I thought, 
That makes sense. Mm. And, you know, he was a good producer at best. And he had aspirations of being the greatest producer of all time. But, like, okay, you're going to take Quincy Jones out? Like, what are we talking about here? Like, you're already in fantasy land just by thinking, you know, like, you know, below that. Like, Quincy Jones is the greatest. And then, you know, you got all these other people that, you know, now you could pile on top of that conversation. To get, you know, Babyface and L.A. Reid, all these amazing producers. And you're, like, thinking, you're going to be the greatest? And so stop right there, right? And then you think about this. Then you are a really good producer, and then you have the balls to think that, okay, now you want to be a rapper? Mm. And I'm like, okay, you know what? I don't know where, you know, what you've been drinking, but you are delusional. (laughs) And then to make it a reality and become this megastar. Once I saw him on an arena stage, I was like, this is that guy whose name I used to see in the liner notes as a producer. Now he is a bona fide superstar. And then he's on the cover of Time magazine. And I said, you know what? I am never going to be in the company of somebody and let them diss Kanye West again. That motherfucker yeah. is unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm a Kanye believer over like, here as well. But so it's like, basically, you, you're manifesting your destiny in the, in the highest way. When you put it in that context, and a lot of times when people, you know, browbeat Kanye, they don't know what they're talking about. Yeah. Like, when you put what he's done in the context of a producer, that could have just been, you know, a footnote, you know, yeah. on an album. Which there's many examples un- of. Yeah, it's unparalleled. It is unparalleled what he has done. And that, you know, and I'm not condoning any of the behavior. I'm just right, saying right. the dream is real. Yep. <laughs> That's all so, I'm saying. I agree with you. So, Manny, I'm gonna need, we, we're going to need you to remove that line off your LinkedIn, please. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, he has he has goat on there. No, nah, no, nah, I'm just fucking. Nah, I got G dot O dot eight. No, nah, nah, I think he put sheep on his. What does sheep stand but for? You know what? Like when, when you put it, it, the problem is people don't put it in context. And so I yeah. thought about it one day because people were knocking him, knocking him. I said, "Look, you know what? If you look back in the history of show business, people have done a lot of crazy shit. If you chronicle their career, so there's a moment now." where people are like, you know, they're hating on Kanye and they're talking about, but they don't really know not only his history, the history of show business. The minute people get money, they get weird. But you don't know that if you haven't been around long enough. So if you're looking at celebrities by today's standards, it's easy to look on social media and diss people. But you know what? Imagine that kid in the lunchroom that had a dream for himself. And then he's on the cover of Time magazine. Fuck all of y'all. Y'all don't know anything about what it takes to make it in America. Kanye West knows. And you want to know something? People won't like this, but Donald Trump knows. Not, it's yeah. not a small thing. It is yeah. not a small thing. Love him or hate him, he made something that was impossible possible. And all it tells you is that you can do the same thing. 
But you got to start with that crazy ass dream. Mm. You got to start with, you know, people laughing at you out the gate. Mm-hmm. Who's signing up for that at 15 years old? 20 years right. old. Takes a lot of right. cojones. Five that. years old. So yeah, let's talk about that for a second. That that fif- <laughs> that fifteen to twenty age. I mean, and you specifically. Um, now you've got a son, and did you have did you have him early on? Were you in fifteen between fifteen um, and twenty? Were you a, a, a young uh, no. father? I, I was. Um, I was uh, twenty one years old when my son was born. Okay, and, and so he, he he started when I was uh, twenty. I'm sure your, your listeners can do the math. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And what's so that I, like I to be a young father, especially? I mean, well, at that point, are you still doing things? bombing or, trains? Or are you? Yeah, are you bombing trains, and or that you, sounds terrible too. But yeah, or are you but but I, in the um, hip hop way? <laughs> you know, just to put it in context for your, your listeners. It is 1983. I'm 19 years old. I, you know, I'm 19. Like, who's done with being young at 19? Right. My whole life is in front of me. I've never had a real job. I've never done anything, you know, to earn an honest living. Like, I haven't done anything. Everything is in front of me. The only thing that's behind me is sharing a bedroom with my brother. You know, like, you know, my, my parents busted my chops. Like, I haven't done anything yet. And so my girlfriend, you know, gets pregnant. And so she's about to have this baby. And I'm like, you know, it didn't even sink into me that, you know, real life, as you know, it is over, my friend. You got to get busy. Like, you right. got to find some money somewhere. You know, like, and I'm a graffiti artist. Like, you know, that's my hustle. Like, I'm, I'm tagging. Like, it, it's really hard to even put it in the context. Like, now when I say it, it sounds so crazy as a career path. Mm-hmm. It's like, you might as well just like, you know, you see that cliff over there? <laughs> like, <laughs> right. Like, it, you know, it's like, you know, like, wow. You know, and, and the only thing I had going for me is that I didn't understand that enough to be scared you know that's what I had yeah. going for me that was what I had as you know like that was my benefit is that I was you know, you know too young to even know the difference youth youthful ignorance yes yeah yeah that's dope. that was my badge of honor <laughs> I, I was <laughs> repping stupidity <laughs> <laughs> And so you have, so you have your son. You're 21, still out there tagging and whatnot. Like, at what point does reality hit and say, "Oh shit, I'm a dad"? And and I don't know. At 21, were you well? Well, I'll, busy? I'll tell you where reality hit. Reality hit when you know I was holding you know like a baby in my arms. I mean, you know, believe me, it kicked in a couple of months before that, and I had to get my own apartment, and my my folks kicked me out of my room. That was reality. Wow. You know, and so my, my girlfriend and I got an apartment, you know, in, in our neighborhood in Queens. And, you know, we got a little basement apartment and we were playing house. I mean, oh, it got real really fast. Hmm. When all of my friends were out doing fun stuff 
and I was like mixing formula. Oh, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. you know, playtime is over. You know, put your black book down, you know, like, pick up a bib. I had to learn. And, you know, obviously, Casey, you, now you know everything that I'm talking about. You know, having a, you know, birth a baby and change diapers and all of it. Oh, my goodness. Like, reality really does bite, I will tell you. Man. And, and you know, I, it, it, it taught me to grow up really fast. And I didn't have a bunch of people to lean on. Uh, you know, while my parents were still, you know, in my life and they were still together, I had to figure out a lot of things for myself really quickly. And there was no manual that you could read, although I did try to buy every book that there was about how to raise a black boy in America. And so you don't even want to get me started. Like, <laughs> were, were <laughs> any a whole another show, believe me. Were any helpful? Of course, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I had a whole library um, of of books about how to raise black boys in America because, you know, contrary to popular belief, there, there was this, this theory that, you know, black boys were in, in, in danger and they were an endangered species and you, you had to give them the right tools in order to survive. And this sounds really strange when you consider all of this stuff that's gone on, you know, over the with all of these shootings and all of the stuff that you know has happened with kids out, you know, in the streets. I was thinking about that by the time my son was born, and I took it very seriously because I had had a lot of run-ins with authority figures, but I was also really young. I didn't know that that stuff would go on for another twenty years. Mm. Um, but I just didn't want my son to be a statistic and uh, I, I dedicated you know the rest of my life to making sure that I, I could change my circumstances so I could change his circumstances now at some point you you become a single father correct uh, that is correct sadly his mother and I did not uh, see eye to eye on everything and uh we, we we split up. She went back home and I went back home. <laughs> Only he came home with me, not with her. So she went back home to her mom and I went back home to my folks. So, so break that down because that's not the typical t- typical thing. That no, happens. but but you know, um, I, you know, I I just came from a working class family, and the idea was that you don't run away from your responsibilities. And I, I think I sort of didn't. I just never thought about it before, so I didn't have any other idea in my head and my sisters weren't having it anyway. So it was like, Mm. you know, you're going to step up and take responsibility. And, you know, I just, you know, it just wasn't, it wasn't even a thought like you're doing it. So I was like, okay. So I didn't even have that thought or option of being a, a deadbeat dad. And so all of a sudden I was like, well, you know, we're a team. And once I decided that we were a team, you know, even though I did all the heavy lifting, um, the goal was to, you know, you know, take care of this life that I brought, you know, into this world that can't do anything for himself except pee on himself and, and uh, need a whole lot of diapers changed. 
And I, you know, I just felt it was my responsibility. And so I just stepped up. I just did it. Now, did you have any, I mean, was uh, your girlfriend at the time, would, I mean, did you guys get into any kind of custody battle or was she cool with you being you the, know what? Um, take, taking we, your son? We, we, we did. You know, the thing that you guys have to understand is that this is at the, the, the height of the crack epidemic. Okay. And so we're talking about the, the early 80s. Right. You know, nobody's got any money. Um, you know, crack is running rampant in the inner city. Um, and we were both young. She was a teenager. Mm. I was 20. Yeah. So, you know, I don't, I, I hope I don't need to paint a picture of that for you. And then we have a newborn baby. Um, but she was so young. It, it wasn't like, you know, there was a whole support system behind her fighting to, yeah. you know, like to help with the responsibility. Her mom was like, you know, do what you need to do. Um, <laughs> and so I, I eventually took her to court for legal custody because one of the things that I did not understand at the time was that just because you have a baby with a woman, you as a man do not have legal custody of the baby. Oh. And so I had to sue for legal custody to be That's his guardian. State. Yeah, I, I, you know, like I said, it may have changed, but the the woman is the legal guardian by birth, wow. not father. Birthright, right. And I had figured that out the hard way when I, I'm, I'm trying to remember what the context was. Um, I went to go do something and I needed some document and that I had to get the mother to sign off. And I was like, the mother? I'm the one doing all the work. And then I found out that the legal guardian and then my sister, you know, took me down to the courthouse and, and we filed for um, legal guardianship and I had to sue for legal custody, but I, I got legal custody. Wow. Damn. It was, you know, it, it wasn't a big deal. Believe me. It wasn't yeah. like, you know, there's a team of lawyers on both sides fighting. It's just, yeah. you know, you had to show that you, could provide and, oh. and if there's no opposition you you know you're granted you know like custody because at the end of the day the you know the, the the city and the state want you to take responsibility it's one less thing that they have to do right right so you you had you you know now you have custody what well, how did you prove that you could provide? Like, what were you doing at that time to oh show that? You, you really are going to ask like all the tough questions, right? <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I'll be honest. Like I didn't have a pay stub. I don't even remember how I proved it, yeah. but you know, I think the fact that I showed up told the judge that I was serious. I was 20 years old. I was 21 years old. Like, you know, I'm going to take the time to go down to the courthouse and show up. And I got my family sitting next to me. That's all she needed to see. Mm. Done. Mm. Next. Yeah. But, um, it, you know, you know, the only times I've been in court was, you know, when I was, you know, dodging a ticket, you know, for writing the fee. So I was scared. I, you know, it, you know, it wasn't something that I wanted to do, but I needed to do it in order to, like, 
be able to take full responsibility. And, the, you know, the, the crazy thing about being a, um, a male guardian for a, a child is um, because um, my, my son's mother was um, Puerto Rican and Irish and I'm uh, African-American, Sounds my like son is really, really white. So my, my son is as white as like, you know, KG. Not that your listeners know what that means, but <laughs> you guys know. Um, and, you know, I'm, you know, dark skinned. And so whenever I was out, people were like, you know, where are you going with this white baby? Uh, and so mm. being his legal guardian meant a lot because I would get stares when people would, you know, see him in the stroll and they'd look at me and, you know, and they're just sort of scratching their head. And this is in the 80s when people didn't just look the other way. They right. sort of wanted to be able to connect the dots. And, and people feel entitled to want to know who you are. Like, who's, where's that baby's mother? Mm-hmm. You know, and that was one of, you know, my favorite things that I think back on that people would say to me, if I had to, you know, pick a, you know, a top three things that people would say to me when my son was between the ages of, you know, one and five was where is that boy's mother? Damn. Consistent. And I'm like, (laughs) I'm his legal guardian. I'm his mother. And they're (laughs) like, what? You know, not I'm his father. I'm his mother. <laughs> what's the What's the feedback after you say that shit? Because that's got to be like, like a, a record scratch. Uh, you know, people just you know they just think you're out of your mind. But I'm telling you right now, and I, and I know I shouldn't be saying this, but I'm going to say it anyway. And you guys, I, I know we're not live, so that you know, right. my son is 35 years old right now. And you can ask him right now who his mother is. And he will tell you that his mother is alive, but I've been his mother and his father. And I talk to him every single day. And he will tell you that. Yeah, that makes sense. I I would give Father's Day cards to my mom, raising me as a single parent. Yeah. So I I understand it. Really quick, I want to rewind something really quick that's a little unrelated to what you're saying, but related. You said you got tickets. For writing graffiti, yeah, yeah, they, yeah I because mean, you know, that, you get, you, you get now everybody's getting arrested and, or in sometimes even shot. Oh well, this is the early days when all they did was beat you up and let you go. But um, <laughs> all you they know, did, you get like a summons, like you know, you you hop the turnstile, you get a summons, and you know, back then, you know, you'd have to pay thirty five dollars or something, and most of the time, all you had to do was really show up, and they would waive it. You know, now. The city needs money, so they're, they're not waving anything off. You know, they're going to squeeze you for something. But, uh, yeah, back in the day, you know, you would, you would get a ticket, you know, on summer. And so that would have never been anything that they would have looked at those tickets to, 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 to hinder the process of you getting the guardianship, the legal guardianship. No, no, no. You know, like I said, you know, with family court, you know, they're not idiots. Like, those judges, they know the kind of people that show up in the courtroom. And so showing up is, is more than half the battle. Right. And, and, you know, you're going to put on a little suit and a tie and, and just show good faith. Like, they want people that are willing to step up. 
that was the last time I was in court with my son was, you know, 1980, you know, four. That was a long time ago. Yeah. That's all all it is, is intention. They just want to know that you care. Right. But I would say that it's it's crazy how times have changed because I have a lot of friends that that are graph artists, and the laws have changed. They're they're a lot more harder on on folks getting arrested. They get arrested for for doing graph. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I would imagine well, that they, if someone's know, going wanna... through the same process right now, that would be it's like a a, game. a strike on their record that they would look at and be like, you know, because sometimes it's even like a federal crime depending on where they're. Wow. Wow. I take pride in saying that I don't know. Um, <laughs> but, I, you know but I think more than anything, they want to set an example. And, and it's always been about setting an example. And, you know, I came up in the era of scared straight. And, then, you know, and I imagine that they've done, you know, different, you know, versions of that. And, and you know, we'll, we'll get into more of that, you know, down the road. But it, it was, you know, for me, it was always like, you know, drugs are bad, guns kill, you know, like the third rail will electrocute you. You know, like I didn't need an example of what that looked like. I'll take your word for it. <laughs> right. and, and and that was sort of how I always lived my life. You know, Nancy Reagan says, uh, just say you know, no. drugs are bad. Yeah, <laughs> just say no. I'm like, okay, you know, done, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, feel the same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was like, all right, cool. I'll just say no then. Yeah, I'm good, you know? <laughs> I, I have a, I have a question for you. Say, um, just just thinking about your trajectory, uh, and you know, you being a single dad. Do you recall like what was like the hardest experience you had, kind of with that conf- conf- conflation of being an artist, being a father, trying to provide, like all those things coming at you at the same time? Do you recall what um, the hardest well, experience was? Yeah, you know, I, I can tell you instantly. Um, so imagine being um, a young man of color and, you know, I, you know, I don't know how many of you have children. I mean, I know KG does. All but, of us. Um, yeah. Have you guys yeah. ever noticed changing stations in the men's bathrooms? Yep. They're in all of them. <clears throat> in the 80s, they didn't have changing stations in the men's bathrooms. And... I had a little boy. I'm already getting fever from people just pushing the stroller. Mm. And when I'd have to change his diaper, I would be, you know, in a train station bathroom. And sometimes I would go into a, a corporate building because they had nicer bathrooms. And you guys ever been in a bathroom at a ball game? Ooh, yeah. <laughs> Would you ever want to roll around on the floor nah. in a bathroom in a ball game? <laughs> nah. <laughs> right? Right? Okay. That, now, you got a visual of that, right? Yeah. Imagine putting your jacket or your coat on the floor Shit. and putting your baby on your coat to change his diaper in a men's bathroom. Ugh. And that's what I used to have to do to change wow. my son's diaper. Whenever he had to go, you know, like, you know, to the bathroom. And I would have to do that. Yeah. Like, my nose has got a visual of that. Like, I, <laughs> I, can, I, can, I can 
smell it when I when I say it, it just like it's so vivid. And people are sort of looking at me like you know, like they've never even seen somebody changing a diaper outside, you know, home and you know, and it was just there was no other way. There were no changing stations. I couldn't do it, you know, out in public. Now, you know, you see women breastfeeding in public is no big deal. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there was no place for, you know, men to do anything. Yeah. And I had to do that. And, um, and I tell my son that story because I want him to know what it was like, you know, during those years when he was little. And and he certainly and I, I you know I got more stories than you guys have time for. I will just tell you that about dealing with discrimination, racism, um, you know, you know, police, like you know, women, like you name it. I've dealt with so much stuff just doing basic things that a woman does every day, but because I was a man. Society just doesn't even imagine that men have to do these things. So just finding a place to change a diaper was a big deal. And this is before they had, you know, public benches and all of that. <laughs> but yeah. so I'll tell you two things. One was that. And then there was another time where, and, and you know, I, I, I'm sure you've all heard of the legend of the black man not being able to hail a cab. <laughs> the legend. <laughs> <laughs> right. Legend has it before Uber, it was difficult for people of color to hail a cab. So um, I couldn't hail a cab. So one day I'm outside with my son, and we were coming from, you know, a, a meeting or something. And, and, you know, I'm, you know, 23, 24. And, and so he's one and a half or two or something and it's pouring rain and I'm just going from lower Manhattan to Brooklyn, not that far, pouring rain. I'm standing out on no umbrella, no raincoat, none of it. Just holding my son in my arms, and I could not get a yellow cab to stop. So finally, a businessman sees me and he hails a cab and I get in the cab and you know, you know, I still like right now, it's like I have to move my phone away because it brings me to tears every time I even think about it. I get in the cab and the cab driver, as soon as I say Brooklyn, he refuses to take me to Brooklyn. Wow. And I'm with a baby. Jesus. And he's like, money is not an issue. And he's like, I'm not going to Brooklyn. And I'm standing out in the rain. And the guy stopped the cab, got out of the cab, went around the car, opened the door, and was like, out. And I was like, I never felt so humiliated, number one. And number two, you know, it was, in my mind, the closest thing that I can imagine to what it felt like, you know, being a slave and watching somebody 
you know, like violates a woman and you can't do anything about it. That's what it felt like to me. I mean, I, mm. you know, I don't have a lot of analogies, but, you know, there are not a lot of times in my life where I felt, you know, dehumanized and I couldn't do anything to protect my kid. Shit. And right at that moment, I said, I need to buy a car. And I went home and I said, everything is going to change from this point on because I'm never going to have that feeling again. And um, I, 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 I'm happy to say I've never had. I've had other things, but I've never had that particular moment happen again in my life. But man, there's nothing that feels worse than, you know, like looking at your kid and knowing that you're doing a shitty job of protecting them out here in the universe. God. And you know, and what's really <laughs> ironic is I, I don't know that I've ever told my son that story because I think I would, I would just be way too emotional. And yeah. I talk to him every single day. And I, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't conjure these stories up a lot. And I definitely don't tell him because, you know, he, he's, you know, got his own greatest hits at this point. And, <laughs> you know, we've had so many great moments that, you, you know, I've, I've never really had a lot of situations where people have asked me about the painful stuff. Yeah. But it looks like you guys are. Uh, just because we know that, um, I mean, what, what we try to do specifically is, is also give other viewpoints and, you know, there's all types of people going through all types of different situations. Right. You just never really hear, you didn't never really hear all the different yeah. perspectives. So there's, yeah. you know, the same maybe not the exact same thing that's going on that happened to you. There's probably, a, right, a, right. probably not. There is right. other people who have, you know, yeah. felt along those lines. So, yeah. um, well, they are horrible experiences. I mean, yeah. you know, yeah. the only reason I even think it's worth sharing is because I, I, I sort of want people to know that it gets better. Number one. And number two, it doesn't define who you are as a human being. And if anything, that was a source of fuel for me because I, I said I'm never going to make somebody make me feel that way again. Because if that baby wasn't in my arms, that cab driver would have caught it. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and there's not a lot of moments in my life where I have really been angry, but that was, you know, one of the all-time worst feelings of my life was that moment and I and I could see it so clearly when I start talking about it um, but I but I do have a couple of others <laughs> <laughs> well I, here's another question and not to dwell on bad feelings too much but I do want your perspective and and we'll keep it light but so at some point your son goes away for for a bit and how as a father how, how did you get through that and, 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 and then when he's home, keep that strong? Well, let, 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 me, let, me, let me start with the first part because, you know, it, it takes a little while to sort of get into this headspace. And, um, I, you know, I can tell you that um, nobody really asks about this. 
and I don't mind uh, sharing because I realize it's, it's therapeutic to even talk about it. Um, <clears throat> so, in um, 2000 and um, I want to say 2010, um, my son got um, sent to prison for 10 years. Mm. And um, what happened was we went through, we were living in LA and we went through a stretch where he stopped listening to me. Mm. And he, we were living in LA at the time, like I mentioned, and he, he started running with a crowd um, that was, you know, smoking weed. And, and you know, and, and then in L.A., um, you know, people drive. We were from New York, so we didn't drive. So um, just the idea of him sort of rolling with people that had cars and transportation, as you know, transportation is freedom. Yep. Yeah. So when he wasn't in the house, I didn't know where he was, but this also predates cell phones. Yeah. So, you know, you have freedom on the one hand, but you you don't have access on the other. So he's running around with these kids and I, I I only know that he's okay when he shows up back at home. And I can tell you stories back when, you know, years, years before, when, when he was a teenager, I mean, he was a teenager then too, but he was a preteen then when we were in New York and we moved out to, um, from Brooklyn to LA to, you know, take advantage of good life. And, you know, my career was going well and I wanted to provide a better life for my son because when he was hanging out, um, you know, in New York, he was running with a bad crowd and I was afraid that he was going to, you know, just end up getting with a bad crew and something was going to happen. And so I moved him out to California. We had a beautiful house and I thought I was providing everything that he needed. And I'm a hands-on father. So um, if you guys have ever seen Boys in the Hood, mm-hmm. the Lawrence Fishburne character, to um, uh, uh, oh, this young man, his name is right. What's my man's name? Uh, uh, Cuba? David Manning Gooding, Cuba Gooding Jr. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I'm the Lawrence Fishburne character, and, you know, my son Eric is Trey, although, you know, Eric is a little bit younger, but very similar scenario where all I want to do is to protect him. You know, I just told you that yeah. story about the bathroom and, and, yeah. and the cab and all of it, so you can tell. I'm a hands-on father. It's just the two of us. And I, I, I know everything about him. I am on him. He is not going to be a statistic, not on my watch. And this is, you know, what's going through my mind. But we bumped heads a lot. And, you know, I'm not, you know, a militant-type father, but there is only one way to do things in my household. And that is my way. Mm, and, right. you know, when I was coming mm-hmm. up, my father was like, if you don't want to do it my way, there's the door. And, you know, I always sort of grew up, grew up knowing what that meant. Don't test. Like, you know, it never even, like, if I even thought 
about testing my father. I'd have the thought bubble like pop by my (laughs) alter ego that was like, are you crazy? (laughs) You know? And you know, like I, I just, I don't know a universe where I could look in my father's eyes and have enough confidence to even say the words that, it, you know, in my head, mm-hmm. you know, like he would like slap my dream and that would make me stop. <laughs> I just, I never developed that muscle ever. And that was the way I raised Eric. So when I parent him, it's, this is the way we're doing it. I, you know, everything that I do is for you. Let's make that clear. Mm-hmm. And he never grew up not understanding that because, you know, every time he looks at me, I'm, I'm telling him the story about all of these things that I did. And my whole idea is I want to provide for my son. That's what a man does. And right. I always wanted him to know that. That's what my father did. That's what I'm doing. That is, you know, the story of life in my opinion. So um, I'm always on him. I'm always mind the company you keep, but Eric, you, you know, I, I I won't speak to him, but I will say he's always worked very hard to try to earn my respect and to impress me. But th- there was a time when he would give people that didn't deserve it, you know, his full attention. And he would do things to try to impress them. And he Mm. was very gullible for a good portion of his teenage years where he was running with a bad crowd and he would do these little initiation things. And, you know, um, can you curse on here? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Like, kids don't give a fuck about you. It's just not in the teenage gene to really give a damn about you and your friend. So they will put you up to do the craziest thing. If something bad happens, something bad happens. You know, but you have to have enough common sense to know what's right and what's wrong. And I worked really hard to try to always teach Eric that. But there were moments where he was going to do it his way. And... Mm. After a while, I was like, I can't watch you everywhere. And so he went and he got, you know, this was, you know, show you what kind of, you know, like kid he was. He, he, he took, um, uh, he got to a point where he didn't want to be in L.A. with me anymore. And he said, I want to go back to, you know, Queens and, you know, be with my mom. And so his mom signed off. I agreed. Um, I, I, I flew him back to New York and then after a couple of months of being there, he decided he didn't want to be there. So he wanted to go live with my, um, my family in Georgia. And so once Mm. again, so just to put it in perspective, he hasn't graduated high school yet. He's like 16 years old and he goes to Atlanta a suburb of Atlanta and he's staying with my family and he's out doing God knows what during the day and at night. And I get a call from my niece that Eric has been arrested. 
And when I, I, I finally, you know, like, you know, get on the phone, um, my mom at the time is in the hospital and she, she's ill. And so when, you know, when I get this call about Eric being arrested, I'm like, fuck him. You know, he can sit there until I can get to the phone and then I'll figure out what I'm going to do with him afterwards. But my mother is my priority. So that's the way I'm thinking. Yeah. And, and so a couple of days later, I find out that he and a bunch of other kids have been arrested for armed robbery. Shit. And oh, now shit. the minute I hear armed robbery, I'm like, oh, they made a mistake. Hmm. Oh, it's not my Eric, not the Eric that, you know, I sent to private school. You know, like, I'm yeah. just like, they, they got the You're in denial, guy. basically. Yeah, I'm like, oh, it wasn't me. Hmm. And his mother's upset, his grandmother's upset, my mother's upset, my, my whole family, because they're like, that's not our little Eric. So the first thing I'm thinking is, what is my niece's, you know, what is she doing over there? Like, how did this happen? Like, how did you drop the ball? Like, right. And what I found out was she wasn't, you know, really on him the way I was on him. And him and his, you know, I do. I use the word friends lightly. I don't know anything about these other people. <laughs> yeah. All I can really do is speak about Eric. But they, you know, um, there was some abandoned houses from what they tell me in this area of, of you know Georgia, and they ordered Chinese food, and their goal was to rob the delivery guy. Mm. And right there, I'm thinking, okay. You know, this is already like a bad made-for-TV movie. Mm. I was like, mm. clearly these guys are not geniuses. But I'm like, <laughs> if there's four of you and nobody says that this is a bad idea. Right, right. <laughs> you know, like, I, you, you can just see it so clearly. Yeah. It's a miracle that they weren't hurt. So they, you know, pull out a 22 on this little delivery guy. And they, they take $30, oh, and the Chinese food. Oh, and, uh, and they go over by, uh, uh, like, a school, and they're eating the Chinese food. And I think they took his jewelry or something. I was like, ugh. Uh. You know, it, it, it turns my stomach to even say this now. And the guy goes back to work. The, you know, work calls the police, um, you know, they start roaming the neighborhood. There's not a lot of places. And, you know, they, they know where kids hang out. They roll up on them and they ran onto, you know, school grounds. And this is at night, you know, like seven o'clock at night or whatever. And what I didn't know was that if you were caught on school grounds mm -hmm. with a weapon, it is uh, a, a felony. Oh. It's a wrap. I, I never knew this. And so the four of them, get caught, they bring them down to the um, to the precinct, and, you know, the first thing they do is they separate them. Oh. And what is the first thing that they all do? They all turn on each Snitch other. Snitch on each other. Oh, shit. Yeah. And, and, you know, 
they all, you know, started blaming each other. But what happened was, I think one kid was 14, one kid was 15, one kid was 16, and Eric just turned 17. Oh. So all three of the other parents came and got them. But because my niece was working, she couldn't come down and get Eric. And because they had all turned on Eric, Eric was the one that got charged as an adult and everybody else went home. Or wow. one of the kids, I think, went to like a, a juvenile thing for like, you know, two months or something. And because Eric was, you know, playing the code of the street, he's not going to rat out his boys. Every one of those kids ratted him out, like, you know, within 15 minutes. And he's, you know, watching these gangster movies and he's like, I'm not going to rat out my crew. He doesn't even know these guys. Eventually, I, I, I got this out of him many months later in a letter. Uh. Um, I hadn't seen him in three months because my mother was sick in the hospital. Uh. And, you know, I won't go into a whole lot of detail about that part of it, but my mother dies, you know, in this story. Um, so you can tell where my loyalty was. I'm like, you right. know what? If you're stupid enough to follow these idiots, I'll get back to you right now. I'm going to, you know, focus on my, you know, my mom and, you know, his mother and her mother and everybody's in an uproar and my family's, you know, really worried and all of it. Um, but you know, I kept thinking like, where's the common sense? Where's the common sense? And so we were writing letters back and forth. And, you know, there was just a little bit of defiance in him that, you know, I, I kept thinking somehow he's trying to prove something to me. And he also didn't take it seriously when he had the chance to take it seriously. And, you know, he, they got a, a crap lawyer without my permission and... The, the lawyer told him to cop a plea and that's what he did. So by the time I get involved, he's already sentenced and on his way to the first, you know, like county jail or whatever it is. So I, you know, I fly down to Atlanta, drive two and a half hours to, you know, where this, you know, places that he is held. And by the time I get involved, it's like, there's nothing I can do. And so, you know, my first instinct was to call in a really powerful, you know, attorney that we had, you know, at, at, at the label. But I was like, you know, I didn't understand the magnitude of what was happening because we were in Georgia. Mm. And I just thought, you know, I'll let him sit there and sue for, you know, like a couple of weeks. I didn't understand what was going on. By the time I found out about the whole 10-year thing and the gun charges and, you know, the, the felony and what it meant to be on school property with a, a weapon, even though the weapon was a twenty-two, and, you know, and I think also that the, the judge was trying to set an example. Yeah. It was a wrap. It was a wrap. I mean, it is easily, like, one of the worst things that's ever happened in my life. And so... You know, I go and visit him at this, you know, in, in this county jail, and 
and, you know, and I'm mad. That's the other thing that I forgot <laughs> to mention in the story. I'm really angry because I'm in denial about the fact that this happened. I'm like, not my Eric. No, no, no. And, you know, like, you're an idiot. How are you going to follow these kids? Like, when I get my hands on the ringleader, you know, all of this stuff. And the story just got worse and worse and worse after that. Um, And, you know, within six months, I really understood how real it was. And it was, you know, it, it, it was nothing like, a couple of times and I had to go pick him up from the police station when he tried to test me or he got into a fight at school and you know went tried to go for the security guard I mean this was like the major leagues compared to those things back in yeah. New York did he do all the time 10 Solid and wow. Wow. That's fucking insane, dude. And let, let me put it in perspective for you. Um, he's in Georgia. I'm living in LA. Wow. I um and then later New York. I am flying from LA to Atlanta. I would rent a car. Stay at a you know a hotel in Atlanta, or if I got in early enough in the day, I would drive to you know like Dublin, Georgia. Right. Stay at a Motel Six, and then go see him the next day. So like they would only you know they had daily visits, but you know I lived in another city, so. By the time I got there, you know, the, the whole visitation would be over. So I would usually go visit him on the weekend and I would make it a whole weekend. So the whole weekend would be reserved for visiting him. So I would leave Friday, you know, get to the hotel Saturday morning, up, you know, seven o'clock in the morning, eat breakfast, drive to this, you know, county jail and visit him all day and you know, you got to get <clears throat> a whole bunch of quarters because you can only use vending machines, like a whole thing. And yeah. you can only send the money to money orders and it's got to be somebody else's name. And, mm. and Oh, my goodness. Like, <laughs> you're talking about it. It, it. it brings up all these memories of all these things I had to do just to see him and to make sure he was okay. And... All he wanted were things that would take his mind away from being in that place. And um, I would go and visit him twice a month. And it felt like, you know, a part of my body was missing, just being away from him. And and we would just sit there, you know, back at the lunch table. (laughs) Like I was saying, earlier and we're just talking about everything but now we got the ultimate quality time but i'm angry and i'm sitting there and i'm like take it from the top we got all day Hmm. run me through what the fuck is going on like where is your common sense 
And certainly, it's all clear when you got nothing but time on your hands. Yeah. yeah. And so he's sitting there with me, and, you know, he, you know, like, that's when reality kicks in. And he's like, you know, I didn't, you know, I, I lost my, my way. And, and he was sort of like, you know, this, the testing just kept growing and growing and growing. And you get to a point where you try to see what you can get away with and the stakes get higher and higher and higher. You know, and, you know, unlike a lot of other people, he wasn't a user. So he wasn't using drugs. He wasn't using alcohol, but he was always gullible when it came to wanting to um, impress other people. And I, and I think to some degree, by default, he was trying to get my attention. Mm. I, and, and it, you know, because that's always been the one, you know, battle that we've had through our, you know, both our lives, is that he's always wanted my attention by any means necessary. And, and that's what's always been difficult, because it took me a lot of years before I could see that yeah. i just thought of it as you know good old-fashioned defiance <laughs> you know right, but right. you know i never had a kid before i never had anything to measure it against his relationship is different than my relationship with my father and you know i didn't know what i didn't know but he is the only son that i ever had and we just you know we bumped heads in a very different way than my father and I bumped And at some point through this, I'm, I'm assuming, did, did the anger leave you when, I guess, through the years with these visits, did, uh, did, did I guess, the feeling change and was it more looking towards <laughs> the end of the stretch or was it still... It, it, still... it, it did. I would, I would say that, but I, I gotta tell you, it took, man, like, it took a, a, a solid five years before I was not angry and I got to a place of healing. And, and you know, and to be perfectly honest, it, it, it took me seeking out therapy because I needed answers. Like, I was like, where did I go wrong? What did I do wrong? I put him through private school. He had the best of everything that I never had. Like, um, when Eric was five years old, one of the things that I knew when he was going to school for the very first time is I wanted my son dressed from head to toe. Uh, okay. And he had a brand new pair of Jordans. So he had a pair of Jordans before I did. Right. And, you know, now, I mean, he's probably got 20 pairs of them because, you know, he was raised you know, the sneaker culture mentality. So he knows so much about sneaker culture and he knows that I sacrificed so he could have the best of everything and that's where he gets that aesthetic from. I would do anything for Eric. And, and, and that illustrates this. And, you know, I, I just, I couldn't understand how he couldn't see all the sacrifice for him. But right. then I think about something like Drew Barrymore and she grew up in this family of overachievers and, and you know, people get neglected and, and you, you know, you, you get introduced to all these substances and, you know, everybody's got their own story. But I sort of just, I couldn't understand it. I was like, 
you know, everything I am is for you. And I was just angry. I was really angry at him. And it took me a long time to get past it because I just couldn't understand it. And, um, you know, when he got released, it was, it was like I was reborn. And, you know, I, I remember um, going to pick him up. And the crazy thing is he got um, released on New Year's Eve. Mm. Um, wow. And uh, I, I pick him up and I could give a fuck about celebrating. Mm-hmm. All I wanted to do was hold my boy again and, and just pick up where we left off and show him everything I had been doing. And that was for me, the, um, you know, one of the happiest moments of my life because I've been waiting so long to show him all of these things that I had been talking about, but I didn't have any phone. I'd be, you know, drawing something on a napkin and, I just wanted him to see what I was talking about. And um, one of the things that happened that was um, really beautiful was that while he was there, he met this artist that taught him how to do uh, portraiture. Mm. And um, Eric learned how to do these beautiful portraits. And... um, we we did an exhibition, you know, I, you know, I'm sure you guys remember, and Casey, you might have been in New York at the time. Did any of you guys, um, you know, see that Tupac play that was on Broadway? Never got to see it, no. No, I didn't see it. And it but it was, you know, um, there was a, a play about Tupac that went to Broadway. Yeah. <laughs> like, no. I, I, but... I, I'm laughing because... Holla if um, you hear me, right? I think is what yeah. it was called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Afeni Shakur was one of the executive producers. Um, but um, I worked on that play. Mm. And the idea was the play's going to Broadway and they wanted the lobby of the theater to reflect the culture. So one of the producers got this idea to do... Uh, um, a hip hop exhibition, museum quality, in the lobby of the theater. Because if the show is going to be up for you know however many months, you want people to walk in the lobby and you want them to feel the essence of the culture. And it made perfect sense. So I got to curate this exhibition. But one of the things that I also got to do was Eric did this really beautiful portrait of B.I.G. And we live in Brooklyn. We lived on the same block as uh, as Biggie um, in the 90s. And, you know, this is all sort of second nature to Eric. And anybody that knows anything about my career knows this. And so when he did this portrait in jail and he came home, and we framed it. I mean, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And um, I put that in the exhibition. 
and we did a catalog that went along with it. And um, KG, did I send you um, a copy of our book, The National, or did I give it to you while I, I saw you in Miami? No, I didn't. No, I, I'm actually going to buy one, but I didn't get it yet. No. But I, I know I had one, but I, you know, in that book, there's a picture of Eric's portrait of B.I.G. And Full circle. Yeah, and to be able to, and the, the cool thing about the book is that it, it's a it's a book about um, visual artists that are um, painting images of hip hop recording artists, and then they tell their story about you know what the artist means to them. So, it's, and then all the photographs are taken by my friend Jeanette Beckman. Yeah. who uh, KG knows as well. So it, it's sort of this sort of triangle moment where you have all these iconic, you know, rap artists um, taken by this photographer, and then you have all these important graffiti and street artists that are illustrating, you know, these images. And so Eric um, does this uh, portrait, and he did an illustration of uh, Public Enemy. And then everybody wrote an essay about, you know, why this image means, you know, what it means to you and, and what, you know, moves you. And Eric tells a story about growing up as a kid and sitting in the office doing his homework. And, you know, Chuck D is there and LL Cool J is there and Run DMC is there and the Beastie Boys are there. And... Wow. He talks about, you know, watching me working and that's his memory growing up. And I'm telling you, like, before I even got through the second paragraph, I started crying because mm. it reminded me that he saw me. Yeah. And he was aware of what attention. I was doing. And it didn't go unnoticed. And I had never heard him articulate what it meant to him. And when I saw that in writing, I was like, you know, like I'm looking at yeah. this book right now and it makes me want to, you know, take the shrink wrap off of it and look <laughs> at this page, even though, you know, I made the book. Yeah. My name is on the book. And to have his name in the book, next to my name in the book. And then we did an exhibition at the museum of the city of New York. And we were both there side by side in a photograph together. It was like that whole thing that I just told you was a dream Yeah, and it never happened. And, That's amazing. you know, I mean, I've never loved anybody like I love him. And he is like, you know, my favorite thing about my life. And I talk to him every single day. And, you know, now he's got, you know, his own army of kids and he's married and, you know, he's happy and I'm happy. That's dope, man. Damn, say, what a journey, man. And and the amount of time you got left, my brother. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, like, if you would have told me that 
that would be my reality. I wouldn't have believed it, you know. And I remember one of my friends said, uh, we'll have good times again. Yeah. And, you know, you, you sort of can't see it. Yeah. And no. um, It's nice how those things right. fade away after, <laughs> after a while. Yeah, they were right. Yeah. But, you know, like, he's my guy. Like, you, you know, when people talk about ride or die, like, he really is my guy. And, and you know, for me, like, a high moment is nothing if I can't share it with him, even though now he's got his own kids and he's got responsibility. And, and you know, like, this might be a weird analogy, but, you know, anybody that's been around long enough sort of will understand it. Um, if, um, you know, anybody... Is ever listen to the, you know, the Harry Tapin song, you know, where he's talking about his son, it, 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 it you know, that's what my, my journey with, with Eric is like, you know, it's like, I was always like busy and, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden, you know, you know, he grows up and then it's like now we have to schedule time, <laughs> you know, and, yeah. and, and it's just, you know, it's just this, this weird, weird thing, you know? Um, and, you know, I, I wouldn't, you know, trade any of it, but it, it, it's just, it's just a, you know, a really weird thing because I, I just think about all of uh, these, these highs and lows that we've had. And um, it just it sort of just, you know, it just makes me laugh. <laughs> you know. Well, that's good. So we, that we've definitely had that kind of life, you it, know. It's good that you can even, you know, after re, re, you know, telling us all about it, the, the reaction is laughter. Yeah. I mean, well, now. you know, you know, but well, you know why? Because I'm lucky, right? Like, uh, you know, a lot of times the story doesn't end that way. Yeah. The story ends really badly, um, and you know, I never wanted anything, you know, for myself. And, and then the minute he came along, whatever I thought I wanted for myself <laughs> disappeared, and it all <laughs> sort of shifts onto him. And you know, Casey, you know what I'm talking about? Like the minute you have a child, you are irrelevant. Everything really is about, you know, I have to figure out how to provide for my kids. Everything becomes about them. Everything you wanted for yourself, now you want for them. And you become, you know, protective. And it it just, it puts it all in perspective. And that's what my life is, is, is like. So, you know, when Eric, finally comes back to me all I want to do is spend as much time with him as I can and now we get it I'm not yelling at him and you know and I'll tell you a, a funny story um, you know I used to ride him about touching my stuff you know memorabilia sneaker mm-hmm. shoes books Right. You know, things, artifacts, whatever it was. When he was a kid, off limits. Off limits, don't touch it, don't look at it, don't think about it. And, and 
you know, the thing that was, you know, but, you know, keep in mind, he had his own stuff. He had his own room. He had everything he ever wanted. You know, I told you that, that Jordan story. Yeah. And so one day, Eric is over at my house and he's got his boys with him and they're both over 10. And I had this Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier action figures. And they had the robes on and, you know, you know, Joe Frazier said smoking Joe on the back and Muhammad Ali's, you know, said float like a butterfly, sing like a bee, you know, and they got the boots and the boxing gloves and all of it. And somebody gave me that for my 37th birthday. And I had all of these things, you know, it's in the box, in the plastic. I might have taken it out one time to look at it at the party and never touched it again. And I would just keep it up on the shelf the same way everybody, you know, keeps, you know, yeah. all of their, you know, their prize, you know, dolls and, and, you know, all of it. And, um, one of my grandkids asked me who that is. And Eric's like, we don't have enough time to listen to this story. And, you know, and this is where he sort of, you know, we sort of fall into, you know, like, you know, I, I'm, I'm George Jefferson and I'm about to tell this. this you, can, you can edit this up. <laughs> but funny. I start telling the kids about who Muhammad Ali is and what Muhammad Ali means to me. And, and it's literally like, oh, Grandpa is going to tell another one of his stories, mm-hmm. you know. And I start telling this story. And Lewis looks and says, can I, you know, can I look at it? And I stand up, I go up on the shelf, and I take the box down, and I put it in his hands. And Eric is looking like, what? <laughs> and... He's like, wow, this is it. Can I open this? Like, sure. And so, you know, he takes one doll, he gives Anthony the other one, and they're looking at the detail and the intricacy. And Eric is just like, okay, stop right here. We got to stop this. He goes, look, I just want you guys to understand that growing up, I couldn't even look at that box. (laughs) And he just gave you that box. And they're like, wow, this is really cool, Grandpa. Can we have it? And I was like, sure. Wow. And Eric is just like, and I said, you could have anything in here. And that was when Eric sort of understood, you know, what it meant to have him back. And I told him, I said, anything I have, you can have. I don't care about any of that stuff anymore. All I care about is you. And uh, you know, I remember he came home and I had, um, uh, <laughs> uh, remember the fat farm jackets that, you know, people used to love KG. Yeah. So I used to get fat farm jackets for like cost or free. And, you know, back in the nineties, you know, I had a closet filled with stuff. So fast forward to, you know, present day, Eric comes home, it, you know, it, it's winter and he needed something to wear. And I gave him my black fat farm coat. 
And these things are really warm, too, by the way. They're like, you know, like Canada goose on steroids mm. for your, you know, listeners out there that don't know. <laughs> and um, he was so happy. And I said, you know, going forward, you can have anything that I have. I don't care about any of it. Nothing is more important than, than you. And that was really the last time that I cared about material possession. And, and, and you know, it, it's the way I feel now. It, it's like, you know, if, if somebody comes and they see a book that's on my shelf, take it. Because if you're lucky enough to be in front of me, you know, that already, you know, says a lot. And, you know, when I'm telling a story, if, you know, you know, giving you this thing means that much, I want you to have it. Because at the end of the day, you know, stuff is just stuff. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it, it's now I'm, I'm sort of packing up all my archives and I'm taking them to um, the, uh, the Smithsonian to... Um, you know, prepare to, you know, catalog my archives. But I, I sort of mentioned that because, you know, I, I just don't, I don't care about anything but people anymore. And so that's why, you know, there used to be a time for a lot of years I was ashamed to tell the story. I never wanted anybody to know. Um, and now I'm, I'm sort of free from all of that. And that's the benefit of a lot of therapy, but also just understanding that nothing's more important than, than him. And that time, you know, all of that, that vanity and all that stuff, you know, it's wasted energy. And, and obviously, you know, now we're living in the age of, you know, COVID. So I know you guys know what I'm talking about. Yeah, you know, yeah, so, sure. you know, you got people out there that you care about, you know, put the, you know, the nonsense aside because, you know, Things are getting harder, and, and you know, without going too much in, on a tangent, it, it's real. And, yep. and so, you know, we, we we need to, you know, share more stories. And that was why I decided to talk about this because, you know, he's everything to me. I'm super appreciative that you uh, opened up about that for sure, man. Because you know, it was. There's other folks out well, there. Well, you know, I, I didn't it. tell you when I, I took him to Las Vegas to see Cher. So, you know. oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and the other, the other brilliant thing is you managed uh, to bring it back to Muhammad Ali from the start <laughs> to the finish of, <laughs> of the podcast. <laughs> right, right. I went in full circle back to the goat. <laughs> Oh my goodness! Thank uh, you for illustrating right, that because I did we... not see that. Huh? <laughs> that was All impressive! Right. Wow, that was good. <laughs> that is the art of storytelling. That's there it. you go. That's it. <laughs> Say, man, it was it was a pleasure um, listening to you. We really appreciate you um, spending the time with us. Uh, I know you got a very busy schedule, even with the COVID stuff. I'm sure you're creating a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, so you want to know something? Um, yeah. I'm working on a couple of things that I'm very proud of, but um, I am uh, yeah, I'm happy to make this time because uh, KG is one of my favorite people out there in the universe. Well, I appreciate and, that. Man. Um, recently, 
before this, I was in New Orleans, and I met Cyril Neville. And the first thing that I told him was how much I love the Neville brothers. And I'm in New Orleans, and I says, I was with my friend Kether. Oh, yeah, we saw him on the street. street, (laughs) And we ran into Aaron Neville, and he did not miss a beat. He gave KG and I both a nod, and he kept on getting up, and I was like, (laughs) I remember that. You know, like, two Neville brothers under my belt, man. Like, New Orleans royalty, man. (laughs) (laughs) That's dope. Stories, stories. Time to go make dinner on my end. Yeah. Good. Tell me, <laughs> you gotta, you gotta make time to call back and tell me about the baby and and tell me how life is, man. Because yeah, yeah, know. we we I'm gonna do that. We'll do a we'll do an offline catch up. It's been a minute since our Miami. Like our, that. You know, last time I saw you was uh, what? Is that uh, two years Miami, ago already? Yeah. Or is that a year Miami, ago? Miami. Yeah. Yeah. It's Miami. Damn. Um, Great. gentlemen, do your thing. Um, if you need anything clarified, just uh, reach out and you know, be happy to help. And everyone can reach you at sayadams.com yeah, and whatever, everything whatever social you got. Say Adams, right? Yeah, all, all of it is still the same. But send an email if you want clarification, and I'll take care of it. All good. Cool. Say, man. We really appreciate it. Anytime. They're happy to help. All right, brother. Peace. All right. Appreciate right, you. you guys. Later. Yo, be a father. If not, why bother, son? A boy can make him, but a man can raise one. Be a father to your child.